Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, welcome back to the story of Jesus, everyone. So excited to be with you, folks at Hohog down in East Wheeling. I am so fired up to be able to preach to you guys today and everybody watching online. It's going to be a great day because we're diving back into the story of Jesus. We've been in this series going through the book of Mark for the last 48 weeks. This is week 49. Now, we've been at it longer than 49 weeks because we've taken breaks for different things here and there, but this is the 49th week of the story of Jesus, and all of it has been leading up to this week. This is the apex of the story. Jesus, we we find Jesus at the beginning. He kind of comes on the scene. He's baptized. His ministry takes off and, and just amazing ways. He develops a following right out of the blocks. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. He's teaching in a way that nobody heard before, and people are flocking to him. In fact, the masses believe that he is the one that the prophets wrote about, that he potentially is the Messiah, the one that God was going to send to rescue them. And and they they had written about him hundreds of years before. And of course, the people of that time are looking through the lens of their current circumstances. And they are, they are occupied by the Romans. And so as they read the stories of the Messiah and the prophecies, they believe that the Messiah, when he, when he comes, is going to rescue them from the Romans and uh, solve the Roman problem for them. Now, uh, if you, as we've gone through this story, the last third or a full third of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, deal with this one week, and we've been in it for a long time. We've been in this one week for a long time. That's part of how we know that this is the apex. This is, this is what everything is leading up to. This is the point of the story, and so we're going to unpack that today. Now, Jesus rides into to Jerusalem on the first day of the Passover festival, it would have been Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday because everybody was laying palm branches on the ground in front of him as he rides the donkey into town, declaring that he was the Messiah, the one who was going to come, fully expecting him to come into town and turn over the Romans, uh, kick them out of, of the city and take over. But he doesn't do that. He just leaves, and then he comes back the next day, and he ends up in the next couple of days just debating and having these theological conversations with the religious leaders who are trying to get rid of him. They want him dead, and he keeps besting them. So finally, they decide that they're just going to arrest him. Um, On Thursday, uh, they had made an arrangement with one of Jesus's followers who sold Jesus out to to give them Jesus's location, and they plan to arrest him on Thursday night. But before they can do that, Jesus uh, has dinner, the Passover dinner, with his disciples. And the Passover dinner for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years was all about pointing back to when God saved the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus takes the dinner and he, he says, basically, this isn't pointing back anymore. This is pointing forward to what's going to happen tomorrow. This, this bread that's symbolic of so many things in the past, it's actually symbolic 
of my body broken for you. And this cup of wine, this is, a, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus declares that, that uh, Passover is no longer about uh, what happened all those years ago. It is about a spiritual rescue that is coming, and it is coming in earnest. And then they head out to the garden, um, and Jesus prays. And he, he asked God to uh, change the plan. Last minute, let's change the plan. God says no. Jesus is arrested. He's taken before a, a court of religious leaders in the middle of the night. It's a completely illegal court proceeding, but they find Jesus guilty, not of, uh, not of treason, but of blasphemy. The problem is, is that they can't have Jesus executed for blasphemy because they can't have anybody executed. The Romans have to have them executed. So they take him to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and they accuse him of treason, not blasphemy. They say he claims to be the king of the Jews, and that would be treasonous because only Caesar is the king. Well, Pontius Pilate hears the case. He finds that Jesus is innocent. He doesn't think Jesus is guilty. But politically, it would be expedient to go ahead and give the religious leaders what they wanted, so he does. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. In Mark chapter 15, in verse 16, if you have a Bible, open there. If you've been with us for a while, you know how to get there. If you haven't, uh, use the index in the front of the book. It works really well. Or if you have a device, you can just click on Mark chapter 15, verse 16. This is what it says. The soldiers led Jesus away to the place, or to the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. So Jesus is handed over to a few soldiers to prepare him for execution. They call the entire company of soldiers together. They, there are unnecessary people there, but they're about to have a lot of fun. See, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers do not like the Jewish people, and the Jewish people do not like the Roman soldiers. Uh, the, the Jewish people are probably in the entire empire, the hardest people to rule. They are ruggedly independent, and, um, and they, there's, there's just an animosity there. So now they've got a guy who claims to be king, and they're going to have some fun with him, and they call the whole company of soldiers together. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. They're mocking him this entire time. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now, at this point, Jesus is absolutely exhausted. He's got nothing left. If you remember the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples couldn't stay awake even for an hour. He's been up for more than 24 hours. He's as exhausted as, as, as they were the night before, even more so. But now he has gone through an all-night fake trial defend, you know, before the, the Sanhedrin. He has stood in, on trial before Pi Pontius Pilate and all of that, and, uh, and that's on no sleep, and that's on no sleep. Then he's handed over to these soldiers, and he is absolutely mocked, ridiculed, and beaten to within an inch of his life. We know from the other gospel accounts that they beat him 39 times with a whip that's called the cat of nine tails, it is a whip, and then it's got all these uh, little flanges or all these tassels on the end of it that are embedded with glass and pottery and, and uh, metal, 
And as it goes across his back, it rips the skin off. So at this point, Jesus has lost a ton of blood. All the muscle and sinew on his back is torn wide open, and he's got nothing left. And it is Roman custom for them to have the person carry their cross outside the city to the place where they're going to be crucified. But Jesus just can't do that. Uh, And so they grab somebody else to do that. Now, this kind of ties into this concept of uh, conscription. A Roman soldier could at any point in time, by law, by Roman law, force anybody in the empire to carry something for one mile. That was the law. That was the rule. Now, Jesus, we talk about, uh, in our world, we talk about going the extra mile. This is where that comes from. Going the extra mile meant Jesus told his disciples, if a Roman soldier tells you you have to carry something for one mile, carry it for two. Kill him with kindness, right? Go the extra mile. That's where it comes from. We're about to see that conscription happen here. They grab a man named Simon, and they make him carry Jesus' cross. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, what strikes me about this particular verse is, is this, the, the level of detail that Mark is giving here. The, 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 like they would know Simon, and maybe even more so know R- Rufus and Alexander, because, because he's giving details that if you were writing something that was general and you couldn't check, you wouldn't give the names of the people who were still alive. But it's very likely that the people he's writing this to know who these other people are, that they were there at the scene, that this was, this was a verifiable historical fact. And in fact, it is, uh, or it was verifiable for the people who were alive there. And the detail that we find throughout the Gospels, the names given, the, 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 the towns that they're from, all of that, we see that here. Well, Simon carries the cross uh, for Jesus. And they says they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, the wine mixed with myrrh was, was meant to be a, uh, a kind of a pain-numbing thing. But Jesus rejects this. Jesus is going to experience the fullness of the pain and the punishment that he is about to receive. So he, he, he denies that. It says, and they crucified him. In other words, they drove nails through his wrists and his ankles and nailed him to a plank of wood. They crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their head and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So Jesus is being insulted by 
the people who are walking by, by the religious leaders who are, you know, he's supposed to be the Messiah and the people who should recognize him the most are now mocking him. Uh, We've got uh, the people, even the criminals he's being crucified with. The Roman soldiers are my, it it is, from my perspective, what Jesus is walking through for so many reasons, crucifixion alone, which was the most horrific possible way to die, but then you throw all the other things on top of it, and I think you get a picture of what hell might look like. This is hell on earth, and this is maybe what God's wrath might look like. He's rejected by his own people. He's handed over to the enemy. He's beaten to within an inch of his life. He's mocked by the soldiers, spat upon, ridiculed, crucified. He is mocked by his own people. He's mocked by the religious leaders. He's mocked by the thieves. It's hell on earth. And what theologians believe might have probably was the most excruciating part for Jesus is that he's rejected by his father at this time as well. In verse 33, it says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turns away from Jesus it's at this point that all the sin of the world has been placed on Jesus, and he had never been separated from his father before, but his father looks away, his father steps away from him at this point in time because he is covered in the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah, Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. It would have been very dehydrated at this point in time. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Then in verse 37, it says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. We know from the book of John that what Jesus cried was, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is done. And then it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this is super significant. God just left the building. The the, the symbolism here is absolutely profound. See, God's presence dwelt in what was called the Holy of Holies in the temple, and the curtain is what separated God from the people One priest every year would go in and make a sacrifice within the Holy of Holies before God. Everybody else was kept at arm's length from God. But now the sins of the world have been paid for and the Spirit of God will live in people and God just left the building. In verse 39, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. This centurion had watched as, uh, as the world went dark for three hours mysteriously. 
He watched as, and again, we know from some of the other gospel accounts that, that the earth shook, that the curtain tore in two, that Jesus offered forgiveness to the people who were doing this to him. They, it, it was unlike anything he had ever seen. That's not how you respond, and these kinds of things don't happen when you crucify somebody, but they happen now. And he says, surely he is the Son of God. Now, we have to remember, and we said this in the first week of this series, that Mark is writing to a Roman audience. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark, it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the who? The Son of God. Romans, Roman, a Roman audience would have been very, not very interested in the Messiah. They didn't, have a, they didn't know the Jewish prophecies and scriptures, but they would have been very interested in the Son of God because there's a hunger in all human beings to be connected with God. It's wired into who we are, and it would have been just as strong in that Roman audience, and he was the Son of God. And now we have a Roman soldier recognizing that. Mark affirming that Jesus was not just the rescuer for the Jewish people, but for all people, including Romans. Now the question we're left with at the end of this this passage is just simply this. Why would the Son of God let this happen to himself? Why would the Son of God let this happen to himself? Why did Jesus walk through this? I mean, clearly he could walk on water. He could raise the dead. He could, he could do anything he wanted. He had power over the laws of physics and nature. He could have called down fire from heaven. He could have done anything he wanted, and yet he chose to walk through this horrific hell on earth kind of experience. Why? And the short answer to that question is simply this. It's love. Love. Jesus chose to walk through this for love. You see, God made human beings so that we could be in a loving relationship with him, so that he could love us, we could love him. That was the original design. That's how it was all set up. And human beings, well, we wrecked that relationship. We, we invited sin into our world and into our lives, and it wrecked us, and it wrecked our relationship with God. It has made a mess of everything. Now, there are some interesting dynamics to sin, and I think it's a little misunderstood. There is this, this concept that we're, we're all born sinful, that sin has, has infected humanity. It is the human condition, and it goes back to the original sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, where God created them and to be in a relationship with them, and it was perfect, and, and it was beautiful. It was untainted, and they chose to invite sin into our world and into their lives. And like a disease, it has spread from person to person to person. Not just humans, though. Our whole creation is infected by this disease called sin. In Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, referring to Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. You know, one of the results of and the natural consequences of sin 
is death. Death is the result of sin, and death is a tool of Satan to reign terror over our world and our lives. Our world is spinning out of control around us because of sin. But that was not the original design. Death was not part of the original design. That is something that we brought upon ourselves when we chose sin as humanity. And when Jesus returns... Jesus won a victory over death on the cross, and we'll get to the resurrection here in a week or two. But when he returns, there will be no more death. He's going to restore things to the way they were before original sin, before the fall of man. There will be no more death. It's hard to get our our heads around that, but that's what's coming. The way we live now, the way our world is is wrecked with disease and violence and wars and, and hate and all of that, that wasn't the original design. That's the effect of this disease called sin that has infected our world and all of humanity. And because of that, all of us have sinned. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, we've, been, we've inherited that. Romans 5, um, 12 says this, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, again, Adam, we've already read this, but I want, I want to focus on this part of it, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because, why? Because all sinned, every single one of us. Death is the natural consequence of sin. And, 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 and so, um, so as we find ourselves impacted and infected by this disease called sin, we find that there is death and destruction in our world and, and we're all dealing with it. But death is also the punishment for sin. Yes, we inherited it. We don't have to teach our kids to be selfish. They do that naturally. It's mine! We have to teach them not to be selfish. It's our natural propensity because it's, it's, it's in our DNA. It's our instinct. We're born sinners. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, well, then why, why is sin punished? That's not fair. I'm, if I'm born that way, I can't help that, Right? And the reason I know you're thinking that is because I thought that. But the truth is, not only are we born infected by sin, but every single one of us has chosen to sin as well. We've chosen to go our own way. We've made our own decisions to rebel against God, to hurt other people, and invite even more sin into our lives. And because of that, because every one of us has chosen it as well, there's not one of us that's righteous, we're all condemned to die. And you can't survive paying your penalty. You can't survive paying your own debt. The debt we owe because of the sin in our life is death. That's the punishment. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we deserve, what we have earned is death, but God offers us the gift of eternal life in Jesus 
The penalty is death. You deserve it. I deserve it. Every human being on this planet deserves that. And community service won't pay the debt. A little bit of time in jail won't pay the debt. It's the death penalty. That is what is, that's what justice requires. But the gift of God is the payment of that debt on our behalf. It's Jesus, it's the story we read today. It's Jesus hanging on the cross, choosing to go through that to stand in our place. Now, if I were God, I would have picked somebody other than my own son to do that. And you're probably think, thinking the same thing. Why would Jesus have to, have to do that? The problem is, is that nobody else is sinless. Every person who has ever lived deserves the death penalty. And so you can't stand in for somebody else if you have your own, own debt. Only Jesus lived a sinless life to be able to pay that debt. Now, I know what else you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I, haven't, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? But I'm not, I'm not that bad. It's like I haven't killed anybody or I haven't cheated on my spouse or, I, you know, I, I mean, I might do this, but I don't do those people. You will always be able to find somebody who is worse than you are, and we're very good at that, aren't we? We're very good at comparing ourselves to other people and making ourselves feel better about, well, my sin isn't as bad as their sin. You're in way worse shape than you think you are. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.21 said, I do not set aside the grace of God. In other words, I need the grace of God. This is the Apostle Paul. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, if, in other words, if right relationship could be gained through saying enough prayers, doing enough good deeds, you know, whatever else, making yourself good enough, then Christ died for nothing. Truth is, the only way to deal with our debt, our sin problem, is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. If there were any other way, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. If you remember several weeks ago when we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pleaded with his Father, please, there's got to be some other way to the point that he, he was, his capillaries were bursting in his sweat glands and he was sweating blood. He was under that much distress. He's begging his father three times. There was no other way because our sin is worse than we think, guys. And no matter how many good deeds or things we do, our sin taints it all. Prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even our good deeds, even our good stuff is tainted by the sin in our lives. It permeates all, all of us. We like to compartmentalize, but it doesn't work that way. On Tuesday this week, well, first of all, you, you may know that I like chickens. I, I raise chickens, and, and, um, and so I love eggs. I'll eat about four or five eggs every day. And so uh, in the wintertime, the chickens stop laying as much. This fall, they were laying all kinds of eggs. 
And so I have a back stock of eggs in my refrigerator from the fall. But, you know, this, in this cold weather, I'm getting like one or two eggs a day. So I go out and, and, uh, and I've got three eggs uh, and I need a couple more. So I go down to the refrigerator and I get a, a, a carton of eggs and I don't actually really know when I got these eggs. So I bring them up. I think it's going to be fine. Eggs last a long time. So I get up and I crack a couple eggs in a bowl. And then I grab one of these eggs that's from, you know, back in the fall sometime. And I crack it. And it is, the, the yolk just disintegrates. And it's this stink comes out of, if you've ever smelled a rotten egg, it was a rotten egg. So what I did is I got a spoon and I just scooped that rotten egg out of there. And then I beat it up and I, and I, no, I didn't. And you wouldn't either. There's no getting that egg out of the rest of the eggs. They all were tainted by the rotten egg. Guys, that's what sin does in our lives. We try to compartmentalize and think, well, you know, if uh, I'm a good person, I just got this one, one thing. I mean, you got more than one thing, but, but at any rate, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm generally a good person. I just got that. Now, if somebody does something to you, they're a bad person right? We want justice. And there's something inside all of us that wants justice because we know the universe doesn't work without justice. But not for us. <laughs> it's just this one bad thing. And, you know, God, God can deal with that and forgive that. But no, we are tainted. Even our good things are tainted and we have become unclean because there's no separating the rotten egg from the unrotten eggs. We all want mercy for ourselves and justice for those who hurt us. And guys, justice is important. It is. Justice is important across the board. It's why God is a just God. It's one of the universal natural laws of the universe. Our universe without justice would be hell. It would be chaos. It would be the evil running over the good. It would be, it would be uh, the strong doing whatever they wanted to the weak. It would be hell on earth. We know this. It's written into us. We need justice. God is a God of justice because li life without justice is hell. And I really think that's what hell is going to be like. You're going to have the demonic and the satanic ruling over everybody else with no justice. Everybody living in terror and fear can be awful. That's what hell is going to be like. And guys, if there wasn't a place called hell where where evil could be separated from and, and chaos could be separated and isolated, the whole universe would be hell. But hear me, as a human being, we were never meant for hell. We were never meant to live, to go there, to live there. In Matthew 25, Verse 41, it says, then he will say to those on his left, this is God saying to the people on his left who have rejected him, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who was it prepared for? It was prepared for the devil 
and his angels. We were never meant for hell. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. But he gives every one of us a choice. Every one of us. Why? I mean, if God were a loving God, why, why would he give us the choice to, to live eternally in an environment like that? And that goes back to the first part of what we talked about, love. He created us to love him. And love is a choice. If we don't have a choice, we're just a, we're just a robot. There's no love without choice. And so he gives us the choice to choose him. And he's moved heaven and earth and gone through everything so that we could not spend eternity separated from God and live in that kind of chaos. And yet he's just, without consequence for sin, without justice. It's chaos everywhere. And God had a plan before the creation of the world. God had a plan. He made human beings to love us, to be in relationship with us, but he knew we had the capacity to choose badly. And he had a plan in place. Uh, the apostle Peter hints at this in 1 Peter 1, 19. He says, but with, this, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Mercy can only be granted when justice is fulfilled. Justice was fulfilled when Jesus was crucified. Jesus stood in because the wages of sin, the penalty for sin was death. Jesus stood in so justice could be served and mercy given. And guys, that is the point of this entire story we've been in all year. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the message of substitution, that God loved you so much he stood in your place and took your punishment for you. Again, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He made Jesus who was sinless, who lived a sinless life, to take on all of our sin and then die in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the only way you get that rotten egg dealt with is through this mysterious, mystical thing called redemption that Jesus paid for on the cross. And God loves you so much that he took your punishment, the punishment that you deserve so that you can be in that relationship with him so that he's not, you're not separated by a curtain or anything else that he literally can come and live in your heart. He paid your price so that you could have his blessings. And the whole of history points towards this going all the way back to the beginning where Adam and Eve made their, their choice to sin and disobey God. And God comes and he kills an animal to cover their shame. In, in chapter 4 of Genesis, uh, Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, an animal is sacrificed and received by God for, for sin, for the forgiveness of sin. In Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac 
God comes to Abraham as he's given him this miracle child, Isaac, who is his most treasured possession thing in his entire world and life. And he says, I want you to go to the mountain and sacrifice Isaac to me. And Abraham does it. He takes Isaac to the mountain. And uh, just before he is ready to sacrifice Isaac, God says, wait, I never intended for you to do this. I just needed to know that I was first. And then God provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac. Fast forward to, to that very first Passover when Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and, and uh, has them all sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts so that the wrath of God would pass over their homes. And then God gives Moses the law and the law, part of that law is this whole sacrificial system where, where the people of Israel at certain festival times would bring an animal and sacrifice it to God for the forgiveness of sins. And there would be a priest, for, and that would be for their families. And then every day the priests were sacrificing animals for the sins of the nation. But all of that was just interest payments. None of that really covered the principle. Jesus, when he declares it is finished, pays in full the debt for sin. And all of those, all of history, the whole, the whole story of the people of Israel points to the cross, and they don't even see it at the time. It's it, in retrospect, it starts to click, but at the time, they don't understand what's going on. They just wanted that rescuer to come and kick the Romans out, and they missed the deeper meaning that their entire culture pointed to, their entire history pointed to. And when the temple curtain is torn in two, now it's no longer an annual visit by one priest. It is God lives in your heart if you accept him and you accept his gift of forgiveness and redemption that he paid for on the cross. And yes, there are going to be people who spend eternity separated from God, but they're going to have to step over Jesus to get there. They're going to have to choose to reject him to get there. Guys, as we come to the end of the story of Jesus, we've got three more weeks left, but as we kind of are wrapping up and come to the end, this is what this story is all about. It's why he came. It's why he let this happen to him. It's all part of the plan. You know, we read... John 3.16, we see it at, you know, sporting events, people hold up John 3.16 and all of that. I love that verse, but I think 17 and 18 are just as profound. And in light of what we've just talked about, I want you to let these words wash over your heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to send you to hell. He came to save you from hell, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, and the world believe there really, really is chooses him, chooses his way, chooses to follow him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him 
stands condemned already because have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Have you chosen to believe in Him? Have you chosen Him? Because that's that's how we find this forgiveness. That's how this payment that Jesus made on our behalf is applied to our account, to our life. That's how the rotten egg gets dealt with. That's how we're made clean so that the Spirit of God that's no longer in the temple can come and live in our hearts in this life and lead us into eternity with Him. Have you chosen Him? And if you haven't, will you choose Him today? Today would be a great day to choose Him. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. I want to invite you to do that right where, right where you are. And you can just pray a simple prayer with me. Just repeat after, after me if you want to choose Him today, to follow Him today, to receive this gift today. Just say something like this, Jesus, I believe. I don't deserve what you did for me, but I believe you did. And I choose to love you back. I choose today to follow you. And I ask that you would come into my life, that your spirit would live in my heart, fill that empty place, and that you would lead me through this life and into the next. In your name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.